Welcome, Christian Israel, white patriots, white nationalists, white people everywhere. This is Eurofolk Radio, the White People's Network, where we talk about Christian identity and the white people's role in the world today and throughout history, of course. And uh, today we're going to start a new series on the early church fathers and how their views contrast with modernism, that is, with what uh, Judeo-Christianity is, what it has become, and how Judeo-Christianity has just been for the last hundred years, a total distortion of Scripture. So it's it's very difficult to find even-handed articles on the on this subject because orthodoxy imposes itself upon the Bible, upon history, upon the views of the early church fathers even. And we're going to demonstrate that this morning. So uh, before we get into it, I want to talk about the Hebrew word yam. I've talked about this because what we're going to do, we're going to investigate the views of the early church fathers on Genesis chapter 1 whether or not they had the opinion of six-day creationism, uh, old earth creationism. In fact, they had various views on it, uh, quite a wide range of views. But today, the, the mainstream churches, the Orthodox churches, have settled upon, well, two, two main views, uh, the uh, Six-day, literal, 24-hour young earth creationism. Uh, they seem to be the you know majority. And the old earth creationists who agree with what we teach here at Eurofolk Radio and what uh, Bertrand Compare and Dr. Wesley Swift taught, namely that yaum, in, that is the Hebrew word for day, translated as day, does not mean 24-hour, a literal 24-hour day. It means an age or an eon. And we're going to find out that many of the early church fathers agree with that position. So why the modern churches have settled upon the twenty literal 24-hour day interpretation is really difficult to comprehend because all of archaeology tells us that the earth, earth is much older then it would be, you know, six, and now it would be 8,000 years, 6,000 years from Adam to Christ, and now we've got another 2,000 years under our belts. Well, that's not what the Hebrew word yaw means. It does not mean 24-hour day. And I've talked about this before, but I want to reiterate this for people who haven't heard this before. And I'm going to be quoting from an article entitled, The Hebrew Word Yom, used with a number in Genesis 1. What does Yom mean in Genesis 1 by Rodney Whitefield, Ph.D.? Okay, and what we do here at Eurofolk Radio and in Christian Identity is we go back to the original languages and find out what the words actually mean. And that's uh, easy to determine by simply whatever word you're looking at, like Yom, and uh, the interesting thing about the word yam, the Hebrew word yam, is it has exactly the same range of usages in the Hebrew that the word day has for us in English. Or I'm sure the word tag, auf Deutsch, etc., etc. 
it goes all the way from a literal 24-hour day. Actually, it means uh, can mean only half a day, like the daytime. It can mean only the daytime or even the nighttime. And it can mean uh, the age of the dinosaurs, the day of the dinosaurs. It can mean hundreds of thousands of years. And it has the same range of meaning in the Hebrew as it does in the English. So I have been arguing on this uh, radio network and in my writings, and so have many identity uh, authors and even non-identity authors, uh, arguing that in Genesis 1, you cannot assume that the word yom means a literal 24-hour day. Simply cannot assume that. And anybody does who is not a really a very good scholar, <laughs> okay, and uh, should re- rethink what it has written. Okay, so, uh, okay, uh, Rodney Whitefield, 2006, this document may be freely distributed, provided is complete and unchanged, and uh, I think Mr. Whitefield has done tremendous work here. Recently, a reader of my book, Reading Genesis 1, asked about the use of a number with the Hebrew word yam. Specifically, I was asked to comment on the statement day with the numerical adjectives in Hebrew always refers to a 24-hour period. In other words, if the word yam is preceded by a number, it means literally a 24-hour period. And he argues, no, that's not true. And this statement appears in John MacArthur's study Bible in references to Genesis 1.5. The quoted statement is one which is commonly offered to justify eliminating the long extended period of time meaning of the Hebrew word yom in Genesis 1 verses 3 through 31. Okay, so in other words, John MacArthur, MacArthur is simply uh, you know, tossing out tossing out the possibility that Yom could mean more than a 24-hour day without any real justification. So eliminating the extended period or age meaning would then give support for a 24-hour interpretation for the duration of the creative times. In the first chapter of Genesis, the singular word Hebrew, Yom, appears with a number at the conclusion of each of the creative times. However, the seventh day is treated differently, even though the word yam is still there. Okay. Subsequently in this article, yam refers to the singular Hebrew word form. Uh, he quotes Gleason Archer, quote, there were six major stages in this work of formation. And these stages are represented by successive days of a week. In this connection, it is important to observe that none of the six creative days bears a definite article in the Hebrew text. The translations, the first day, the second day, etc., are in error. There is no definite article. The Hebrew says, and the evening took place, and the morning took place, day one. Hebrew expresses the first day as by Hayom Harison, but this text simply says Yam Ehad, day one. Again, in verse 8, we read, not Hayam Haseni, the second day, but Yam Seni, a second day. In Hebrew prose of this genre, the definite article was generally used where the noun was intended to be definite. Only in poetic style could it be omitted. 
The same is true with the rest of the six days. They all lack the definite article, thus they are well adapted to a sequential pattern rather than to a strictly delimited unit of time. So in other words, just because the, even if the Hebrew word yom had a definite article and a particular number in front of it, doesn't mean that it means a literal 24-hour day. So uh, I would uh, encourage everybody to read this article. You can go online. It's Yam with Number by Whitefield. If you type that into your browser, it'll pop right up for you. Many uh, postings of this article. It's become more and more popular since I first referenced it about, I don't know, 15 years ago. (laughs) So it's become more and more popular. It's more easily available. And I'm just going to drop down to his conclusion section. Conclusion, what does all the foregoing mean for understanding Genesis 1? 1. The uniqueness of the Hebrew numbering of the creative yam actually supports the view that the creative yam are not ordinary 24-hour days. Number 2. The numbering of the creative yam does not exclude the extended period or age meaning of the Hebrew word yam when referring to the six creative times. The unique numbering of the creative times adds support for the extended period or age meaning. Conclusion number three, there are no other applicable examples of the numbering of a sequence that is equivalent to the numbering of the creative yam, that is, in Genesis 1. Assertions which attempt to interpret numberings which read yam second using numbering which in yam the second are flawed. To many readers of English translations, the difference in meaning between a second day and the second day will not be apparent. Because of this, the Hebrew phrases are better translated another way. And the author prefers translating a second time, a third time. And of course, my preference is the first age, the second age, the third age, or eon. Eon is even a better word because it so closely resembles the Hebrew word yom. In fact, in my opinion, the English word eon is derived from the Hebrew word yom. And that is the true and proper meaning of the word in Genesis chapter 1. It does not mean a literal 24-hour day, especially since for the first three days, there was no sun, there was no moon, there were no stars. So how are you going to get a literal day out of the first three days? And this article will get into that. So I've, I've referenced the other article here in the chat room. That were the early church fathers teachers of a literal 24-hour day? And this is evidence for God, uh, www.godandscience.org, Young Earth. And you, you can probably just uh, type in, well, here's the, uh, how should I put this? The easiest way to find us in a browser. Early Church Fathers' Perspective on Genesis by Dr. John Millam. Okay, Early Church Fathers' Perspective on Genesis by Dr. John Millam. I'm going to be doing a series on the beliefs of the early church fathers and contrasting them with modern orthodoxy. And I think we will find that the early church fathers more often than not disagree with modern orthodoxy, that is, Judeo-Christianity, 
which has, in my opinion, virtually nothing, virtually nothing to show for it. Judeo-Christianity is wrong on practically everything because it is antagonistic to the covenant message. Totally antagonistic to the covenant message. Modern Judeo-Christianity has become universalistic. It, it teaches race mixing. It teaches the equality of the races. It teaches everything the Jews teach. And Christianity cannot be equated with Judaism. They're total opposite. But modern orthodoxy has been Judaized. And the, the, the Christians who teach it don't even realize it, how thoroughly they have been Judaized. So real quick uh, aside here about the author, Dr. Millam, M-I-L-L-A-M, received his doctorate in theoretical chemistry from Rice University in 1997 and currently serves as a programmer for the Semichem, for Semichem in Kansas City. Okay. Now, there's the very interesting because Christian identity states very clearly, and both Swift and Compare made some similar statements as I have made, that there is no contradiction between natural law and the Bible. Let me repeat there is no contradiction between natural law and the Bible. The reason for this is that Yahweh God created the. the the universe and established natural law and he wrote the Bible through his prophets and scribes. So Yahweh would not contradict himself. The contradictions exist only between fake science and fake Christianity. Real science does not teach evolution because genetics does not teach evolution. There is no such thing as a positive mutation, which is the myth that evolution is based on. No, Yahweh God created the races. He created all the species. That's what happened in Genesis chapter 1, the creation of the species. Genesis chapter 2 deals with the man Adam and the woman Eve, not with the species. The species was already created, the Adamic species. In Genesis 1, 26, 27, etc. Okay, so the orthodoxy, because they never bother to do any word studies, such as studying the word yam and what it really means, simply make stuff up. And this is what passes for Christianity today. It really is an abomination. Such poor scholarship. Is is an affront to the, to theolo, theological seminaries, but this is what they do. They don't do. It's just like in law. In law, they they study. They don't study the Constitution. They study commentaries on the Constitution. Well, the same thing applies to the Bible in theological seminaries. They don't study the Bible. They don't study the the Hebrew and the Greek. They study commentaries. And most of those aren't even on the Hebrew and the Greek. They're just opinions gathered over the last 2,000 years, all of which amount to false teaching. The vast majority of what passes for Christianity today is almost all false teaching. 
because it does not refer to the original Hebrew and the original Greek. It just upholds false traditions. So, this article by Dr. John Millam is excellent in the sense that it's actually non-biased. He takes an unbiased look at the early church fathers, and he basically says, well, there was disagreement among them as to how to interpret the word yom, how to interpret the first days of Genesis. So there is no consensus among the early church fathers. Yet, the six-day creationist, the literal 24-hour day creationist, insists that there was. No, there wasn't. (laughs) No, there wasn't. And they did not teach a literal six-day creationism. Some of them did, but by no means all, and their opinions could not be compared with the modern six-day creationists. This is the conclusion of Dr. John Millam. Now, the the flaw in in Mr. Millam's analysis here is that he himself has become a universalist, and he, he, he assumes that the Jews are the Israelites of the Old Testament. So I will just correct his language as we go through this. And one more thing. All of the early church fathers were white. They were Caucasians. They were Adamic Israelites. None of them were Jews, because the Jews are not Israelites and never have been Israelites. And all of the record, the entire record of the Middle East, the Romans, the Greeks, whatever, uh, the, uh, the Assyrians and the Assyrians, their statuary and their coinage, the visages that appear on the coins, the faces of their leaders, they're all white, every last one of them which proves that the entire ancient world was a white world. It was a Caucasian world. No statues of black, (laughs) of a black David. David is pictured as white because he was white. Jesus is pictured as white because he was white and still is. The Bible was not written by black Hebrews. The blacks were illiterate until we discovered them in the depths of darkest Africa. And their claims that we stole their language from them is simply absurd. How do you forget a language? uh, When did the whites go down to Africa, round up the blacks, and prevent them from reading and writing? When did that happen? They never had a book. They never wrote a book. Their languages are so primitive, they only have two or three hundred words in their vocabularies. But this just goes to show that the Bible is not for them, it's not about them, it's not by them. The Bible is by, for, and about the Adamic race. That's who it's for and that's who it's about. Now, folks, let's get into this. Introduction. Understanding early Jewish and Christian interpretations of Genesis, and by Jewish, we must say Hebrew slash Israelite. And I will substitute uh, Hebrew 
or Israelite, depending on which is most appropriate, because the Bible is not a Jewish book. No Jew had any hand in writing the Bible. Israelites did and Hebrews did, but not Jews. Jews are descended from Edom. Continuing, I'll just start it over. Understanding early Hebrew and Christian interpretations of Genesis's opening chapters has been a passionate pursuit of mine for the last five years. This is a very difficult and complex topic, but one that can yield important insights into the contemporary debate over the age of the earth. Given my background, he's a chemist, a friend asked me to review Coming to Grips with Genesis, a new young earth creationist book edited by Terry Mortensen and Thane H. Urey. The book is a collection of 14 scholarly articles written by different authors defending modern young earth creationism, namely a calendar day or 24-hour day view, recent creation, global flood, and no animal death before the fall. Now, this, this to me is utterly absurd, that not even the animals died Well, I guess if you take it literally as six literal days, there wasn't enough time for any of the species to die. But what about accidents? Didn't any accidents happen? Genesis 1 says it was good, even very good, but it doesn't say it was perfect. So to conclude that no deaths of any animals whatsoever. Uh, How about worms? How about insects? The idea that there was no such thing as death for any species, let alone the Adamic species, before the fall of Adam and Eve is, to me, an, an immense stretch of logic, even if you believe in six day creationism. But let's continue. In the first chapter, James Mook, M-O-O-K, covers how the early church fathers dealt with Genesis 1, Noah's flood, and the age of the earth. Since the subject matter corresponds to an area I have studied intently, I will limit my response to just this chapter. The central question I am trying to address in this article series is whether or not the church fathers lend valuable support to modern young earth creationism, as argued by Mook. Okay, so the question is, did the early church fathers actually support a young earth literal six-day creation interpretation? Did they or did they not? A little background. While my actual academic background is in chemistry, I became interested in patristics, that is, the study of early church fathers, after reading the Genesis debate, which presents three different views of the creation days side by side. J. Ligon, Duncan III, and David W. Hall support a 24-hour day, that is, young earth view. Hugh Ross and Gleason L. Archer defend a day-age, that is, old earth view. In other words, the Hebrew word yom can mean an age or an eon. They support that view. And Lee Irons and Meredith G. Klein argue for the framework hypothesis. Okay, uh, let's see what is the framework hypothesis. 
okay, that there's triads. Uh, day one, let there be light. Second triad. Oh, okay, so the first three days are a triad and the second three days are a triad. I'm not familiar with this view. This is first I've ever heard of it. So uh, I don't know how that affects whether Yaum is literal 24-hour days or not. But it says, day one, let there be light. Day two, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. Day three, let dry land appear. Let the dry land produce vegetation. I would say that in order for vegetation to appear, some worms had to die. (laughs) Some insects had to die. Some grubs crawling around in the earth would have had to die in order to produce the nutrients absorbed by the vegetation. This alone would suggest that we're dealing with ages, not 24-hour days. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that Yahweh couldn't have created dead insects (laughs) right from the start. But why would he do that? Uh, Why wouldn't he want to establish an earth and natural world order? right from the beginning, and let and let the dirt do its job. Let the dirt decompose itself so that the vegetation can d- pick up its nutrients. So the second tri- triad is let there be lights, 114, day four. Let the water teem with creatures and let birds fly above the earth, day five. Let the land produce living creatures, day six. Let us make Adam not man, Adam, 126. I give you every seed-bearing plant and every tree that has fruit with seed in it for food. That's day six. Okay, so this uh, this interpretation divides, divides the uh, analysis into these triads. Uh, first, I've ever heard of this. I don't see uh, how relevant it is. Anyway, each pair of authors appeals to the church father's writings to support their own positions. Yet their analysis of the material clearly contradicts their opponents. Oh, so how can three different views of Genesis 1 be held sincerely and all these different views contradict one another? Well, if you're not referring to the meanings of the original Hebrew words, you can make up anything you want. He says, therefore, so who is right? This question was very frustrating for me because there are so few resources available to help resolve it. Indeed, finding an author who has a balanced perspective on this was very difficult. Uh, After looking through a dozen or more, this was the first one that came up saying, oh, well, here are all the different perspectives. Let's look at them all. Most of the articles on Genesis creationism are very dogmatic and do not consider the other possibilities. They simply argue for one point of view and then state everybody else is wrong. But this author, Dr. John Millam, takes a more balanced approach. It's actually very refreshing. Feeling deadlocked, I focused on other things until I eventually came across creation and the early church. Robert Bradshaw's lucid and well-documented introduction to this difficult topic. What I found so refreshing and educational about Bradshaw's work was that rather than simply cataloging the church fathers according to their interpretations, 
He analyzed the complex history and undercurrents behind their views. Okay, so it's easy to place this author and that author in six-day uh, or young age, young earth, old age, and, and neither, because a lot of the early church fathers did not address the subject. And there, there's always a third category for everything, never just two. What I found so refreshing is that Bradshaw's work was that rather than simply cataloging or placing, putting them in a box, he gave the nuances of their positions. I appreciated his work despite the fact that he wrote from a young earth view and was refuting old earth creationist claims about the church fathers. I also greatly valued his refreshing honesty such as his acknowledging that the early church fathers held to, quote, a diversity of opinion, unquote, with respect to Genesis 1. And this is very refreshing. <laughs> because everybody tries to say, oh, well, all these people agree with us and not with... You know, the fact is that the early church fathers did not have the benefit of... Science. They simply didn't. So uh, their opinions have to be taken with a grain of salt. And any church fathers or modernists who uh, argue that there's only one way to interpret Genesis chapter 1, namely our way, tend to be wrong. They tend to be drastically wrong. So you cannot, this is the age of dogma, folks. We're living in the age of dogma, even though they should know better that differing opinions need to be taken seriously until they're absolutely refuted. And you can't just, uh, you know, reject a theory because it disagrees with yours. So let's continue here. Bradshaw's study reinvigorated my interest in the patristic view of Genesis and that is, by patristic, he means the views of the early church fathers. It did much to correct and clarify my thinking, but there was still much more to research. And indeed, you can read someone you totally disagree with and still catch tidbits of information that are very valuable. So if you read, for example, Mein Kampf, you get a really good view of how the Jews controlled Germany. But if you read Zionist literature, Adolf Hitler is evil incarnate. If you read our literature, the Jews are evil incarnate. So how they view each other is always of interest. Uh, spoiler says, when the eyes of ancient Sumerian statues were, are found painted, those eyes are blue. But modern art history professors will tell you it doesn't mean that those people were white people. <laughs> well, there were certainly whites among the Sumerians. Uh, our teaching on the Sumerians is that they were one of the first multi-culti civilizations. They, but they started out white. There's no doubt that they started out white. And it's possible that Cain moved in with the Sumerians. And he's the one who began the tendency toward multiculturalism among them. Okay, But as I said, all of the statuary from the Middle East, from those days, shows white people 
certainly doesn't show any Negroes. And also, the first pharaohs of Egypt were clearly white, and their DNA proves that. Let's continue. So, the current scope of my research... Oh, let me back up. He says, I soon realized that the only way to fully appreciate what these ancient figures taught was to wade through the original writings and study their historical context for myself. That's what you have to do. Don't accept somebody else's opinion. Always check it out. Moreover, by the way, Christian identity is the only modern version of biblical scholarship which encourages people to do their own research. Moreover, it soon became clear that I also needed to include early Hebrew writings in my study. The church was birthed in a Hebrew-Israelite context, so some of these works helped shape the church fathers' thinking. The current, well, they were Israelites, of course. The current scope of my research includes more than... Now, this author falsely assumes that the Jews are Israelites. So he uses the word Jewish instead of Israelite. The current scope of my research includes more than 30 early Hebrew sources and 50 church fathers, and so covers the majority of the relevant extra-biblical writings up to the 5th century. While the bulk of my research is first-hand reading, I do still read whenever possible what young earth creationist writers have to say to ensure that I don't overlook relevant information and to counterbalance my own old earth perspective. So here he admits that he, his opinion is old earth, which I put myself in. I teach that Genesis 1, the word Yao means ages or eons, not literal 24-hour days. Next heading. Problems with Old Earth Use of Early Christian or Church Fathers. Mook begins his essay by criticizing those who argue that the early church fathers supported the notion of deep time, that is, an old earth, and other modern theories. He identifies, one, William G.T. Shedd as claiming that some of the early church fathers taught a day-age view. Well, that is true. They did. Some of them did. Number two, Henri Blacher as writing that Augustine held to a view similar to the framework hypothesis, which we just discussed, it divides Genesis chapter 1 into three, two triads. And three, Arthur Custance as claiming that Origen held to the gap theory. The gap theory we have discussed at length in other times, basically showing that the the difference between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 is it says the earth had become void and without form. It wasn't created that way. It had become that way. A big change happened. And so there's who knows how large the gap is between the original creation and the catastrophe that destroyed that original creation. And therefore, the earth had to be re Plenished, not plenished for the very first time, but replenished. So the Hebrew language supports the gap theory and the old earth theory as well. Number three, 
Arthur Custance is claiming, oh, I read that already, but I'll repeat it. Arthur Custance is claiming that Origen held to the gap theory. Whether he did or not, it's good that this author is discussing all three concepts. Mook's rejection of these specific claims as inaccurate is justified. This kind of misuse of the patristic writings to support Old Earth creationism is a common complaint echoed by other young Earth creationists, including Bradshaw. Mook also takes aim at Dr. Hugh Ross's claims on this subject. Ross's earliest statements claim that are Irenaeus, Origen, Basil, Augustine, and Thomas Aquinas taught that the creation days were long periods of time, which Mook rejects as incorrect. In later books, Ross has backed away from many of those claims, but still argues that Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and several others taught that the days of creation were 1,000 years each. Mook concludes that while Ross become uh, that while Ross became more nuanced in his claims, he remains substantially wrong. Okay, so the essential feature here is whether the young earth versus old earth creationism is the correct view, because they can't be, both be right. One has to be wrong. Unfortunately, few old earth creationists have written about the church fathers, and what little they have written is often poor quality, with Stanley Jackie as a notable exception. This scarcity of solid resources is part of what motivated me to research this issue for myself. Let me put it this way. Uh, with the advent of modern science, circa 1700 AD, the issue was not discussed. It simply was not discussed. It was not considered relevant to Scripture whether or not the universe existed before Adam and Eve were created and how long it existed before they were created. That just simply was not an issue. But now that we know more about science and archaeology and geology, it has become relevant. And so, as I said earlier, there is no contradiction between natural law, because Yahweh created natural law, and scripture, because Yahweh wrote scripture. The two must, of necessity, conform to one another, and they do. Based on my own research, Mr. Mullen continues, no early church father taught any form of a day-age view or an earth older than 10,000 years. However, for someone to teach that the earth is 10,000 years old in uh, 100 AD or 200 AD is quite a statement. All right? So it means they do not take Genesis 1 literally. In fact, uh, or to be a day-age a day statement. Because what you call literal or figurative is really meaningless. You have to understand what the word means, the word yaw means. So the day-age interpretation is not a metaphorical interpretation because the word yaw literally means that. It can also mean a 24-hour day. So either one can be considered a metaphorical interpretation. It all depends on what the true meaning of the word yom is in Genesis chapter 1. One of them is correct, and the others are wrong. Now he says that, uh, okay, 
In fact, the first people that I can clearly identify as teaching the old earth view are Isaac Newton and Thomas Burnett in the late 17th century. This seems like a fatal blow to old earth creationism and a strong vindication of Mook's position, but closer examination shows otherwise. As I said, the issue has only begun to be discussed in the 17th century, 18th century. Next heading, problems with young earth use of early church fathers. While Mook has many valid criticisms of old earth creationist use of the church fathers, what of his own claims? Do the fathers really support his young earth view? Does he accurately represent their position? Now, this is this galls me, folks, that so many Christian theologians can be dishonest. <laughs> I mean, to me, growing up as a Catholic, to be Christian meant you had to be honest. You don't make things up. Swamp Fox. Billions of years between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. It could easily be billions of years. We have no way of knowing. The Bible really doesn't discuss the age. It's certainly the, let me put it this way, the fable of evolution demands billions of years to make one mutation stick. <laughs> right? And even then they can't prove that that mutation stuck because there has never been any evidence of a positive mutation leading from a lower organism to a higher organism. It's never been demonstrated. No scientific experiment has proven it. No observable fact has proven it either. But there is no doubt that the day-age interpretation is the one that makes the most sense given natural history. Let's continue. Uh, so, uh, so he does a good ar- uh, job of arguing against the other points of view, but he, uh, the author, Mr. Millam, Dr. Millam, says, well, he doesn't do a very good job of supporting his own point of view, and uh, that is, uh, I have found a problem with all young age creationists. They simply ignore too much science. They simply ignore too much science. They claim to be scientifically oriented, but they ignore too much science. So I say, instead, he presents an extremely one-sided analysis of the biblical and non-biblical factors shaping the father's interpretations in order to support his own desired conclusion. Sadly, I have found this to be a very common flaw (laughs) in the young earth usage of the patristics, And I just stated this is a very sad flaw among most Christian theologians as well, with Bradshaw as a noteworthy exception. Honesty is in short supply even among mainstream Christians. Consequently, most attempts to use the church fathers by both old earth and young earth creationists are seriously flawed, just in different ways. The simplest, you know, there's a really good uh, good thing to be said about being devil's advocate. And in my studies, as people familiar with my writings know, I quote Jews extensively, admitting that they are not Israelites. I mean, you have to take the other side's 
point of view and understand what they say, especially when they make admissions that confirm your point of view. (laughs) That I consider to be the best evidence of all. But very, very few Christians actually quote Jewish writings. And I'm not talking about the Bible. They falsely assume that the Bible is Jewish. But modern Jewish admissions to their non-Hebrew lineage, and then when we know who we are, that we are the Israelites and they aren't, it makes biblical understanding so much easier. And the biblical prophecies come to life. We find that all the prophecies concerning the Israelites are fulfilled in us. And the biblical prophecies concerning Esau are fulfilled by the Jews. It's very obvious. So, the simplest and most important example of Mook's poor analysis is that he fails to grapple with the patristic father's linguistic dependence. These men were almost entirely dependent upon Greek and Latin translations of the Old Testament rather than the actual Hebrew in which Genesis was written. As Bradshaw documented, well, this is a flaw of the modern Judeo-Christians too. The vast majority of them don't know Hebrew and don't could care less. As Bradshaw documents in detail, none of the church fathers were fluent in Hebrew until Jerome and Theodore of Mopsuestia, Theodore of Mopsuestia in the late 4th century. Prior to that, only Origen and possibly Eusebius in the 3rd century seemed to have actually studied Hebrew, but neither was fluent. And this is a major problem. How can Christian theologians who accept the Hebrew Old Testament fail to study the Hebrew words, at least study the meanings of the words, and do comparative research by comparing verses that use that particular word. That's the way you find out what the word really means. A deficient knowledge of Hebrew is probably the single most important factor leading to a young earth misunderstanding of Genesis. I could Now that's a statement I agree with 100%. A deficient knowledge of Hebrew is probably the single most important factor leading to a young earth misunderstanding of Genesis. In other words, young young earth creationists will simply ignore the article I started out quoting, Yom with Number, showing that the their interpretation that Genesis 1 means 24-hour days and can only mean 24-hour days is flawed. That's simply an assumption a non-scholarly assumption they have made. And that makes, well, that's really why the Bible has become a laughing stock to secular white people. Because what they teach doesn't make any sense. You know, questions like, where did Cain get his wife from? If there were only three people on the face of the earth. Did Cain have incest with his mother? No, the other races were already here, including the white race that was created in Genesis 1. And as I said, Cain probably meandered over. The land of Nod means land of wandering, and he kept on wandering until he found some kind of settlement. It was probably the Sumerians, or pre-Sumerian settlement. 
So that's that's where Cain found his wife. You have to know natural history in order to properly interpret the Bible. That's all there is to it. You cannot simply rely on an English translation, especially one that is terribly flawed like the King James, where it uses the word Gentile instead of the word race or nation. It's deliberately multiculti. Okay, sadly, I found this a very common flaw in the young earth usage of the patristics. Consequently, most attempts to use the church fathers by both old earth and young earth creationists are seriously flawed, just as just in different ways. Okay, Mook acknowledges that the church fathers were largely ignorant of Hebrew, but he relegates this critical observation to a mere footnote. He does not discuss the implications of this ignorance and uh, what this ignorance poses for their interpretations. Greek, or for modern theologians, Greek and Latin are very similar to each other, but very different from ancient Hebrew. So even a literal interpretation based on either of these languages will not necessarily represent a literal understanding of the original Hebrew. Amen. You have to have some knowledge. If you don't understand the Hebrew language, at least consult the concordances to find out the definitions of the Hebrew words. For example, in Genesis uh, chapter 2, where it talks about Adam's rib, well, that's the only verse in which the word is translated as rib. In all other usages, I think the word is tzila in the Hebrew, it's translated as side, as in the side of the hill or the side of one's body, or the side of one's face. So why did the KJV translators choose the word rib, where everywhere else the word means side? To me, that's an unjustified editorial insertion. It should say side. Yahweh took from Adam's side, not from a particular rib. Okay? So, ironically, Mook does, does apply this principle selectively to dismiss Augustine's non-calendar day interpretation on the basis of Augustine's dependence on the Latin translation of Genesis. Okay, so you can criticize Augustine for his usage of Latin. Well, we can criticize you, Mr. Mook, for your usage of an English translation and your non-reference to the Hebrew. If Augustine's Latin-based interpretation is suspect, then should not the views of the fathers mentioned by Mook be questioned for their dependence on Greek? Absolutely. This inconsistency undercuts the objectivity of his analysis. Who wants to be objective? <laughs> Swamp Fox states, The mark of an educated man, mind is to understand another man's position without embracing it. Who said that? <laughs> That's a great quote. Who said it? It had to be a white man. <laughs> All right. Let's get back uh, to this uh, document here, which so far, so good. 
The only problem I have with the author is his misidentification of Jews with Israelites and his false assumption that the Bible is a book written by Jews. It's not a Jewish book, folks. It is not a Jewish book. Okay, so... uh, The main interest in the church fathers stems from the assumption that they were closer in language and culture to the Bible's writers. Well, yes, they were much closer while in in time frame, but none of them embraced Judaism, right? They rejected Judaism, which should tell you something. While While that is largely true for the New Testament written in Greek, the early church lacked a clear understanding of Hebrew and the Hebrew culture of the Old Testament. In fact, Bradshaw asserts, quote, Given this evidence, I think it is fair to conclude that at least in its knowledge of Hebrew, modern Christian scholarship has the edge over the church of the 3rd and 4th centuries. Well, but if you assume that the Hebrews are Jews, then you're you're actually behind the eight ball instead of in front of it. Unfortunately, this omission is not the only flaw in Mook's analysis. The early church divided. It is well acknowledged that the church fathers were by no means unified on how to understand the creation days. Even Book recognizes that Clement of of Alexandria, Origen, and Augustine rejected a calendar day view. Okay? So that this monolithic view of the day age, I'm I'm sorry, the 24-hour day Theologians cannot be said to have been the uh, you know the majority opinion among the early church fathers. They disagreed amongst themselves. So let's keep that in mind. Believing instead that everything was created instantly, snapping the fingers. Well then, no, not even literal twenty-four hour days, <laughs> not even day age. For completeness, we should include Hilary of Poitiers and the Hebrew scholar, the Judahite, in this case it would be a Judahite scholar, Philo, who believed likewise, even though Muk does not discuss them. And I've done a lot of research on Philo, and he is, in my opinion, incorrectly identified as a Jew. He was a Judahite of the Judahite colony in Alexandria, Egypt. He was not a Pharisee by any stretch of the imagination. Okay, so let's continue. These facts carry two important consequences for Mook's point. First, there was genuine disagreement in the early church over how to best understand the days of creation with a small but significant number rejecting the idea that they were ordinary days. Second, or 24-hour days. Second, the church allowed for charitable disagreement on this point and did not view it as an issue of orthodoxy. Okay, so if you disagreed, well, what was orthodoxy in those days? On, you know, on this view, on interpretation of Genesis 1. The fact is, you have to have an understanding of the meaning of the Hebrew and how the word yaum is used throughout the Hebrew scriptures to form an educated opinion about it. And none of the church fathers had that. 
unfortunately, none of the Christian theologians today have that either. Recognition that Augustine was the single most influential theologian of the early church further challenges Mook's position by demonstrating that opposition to a calendar day view cannot be dismissed as a mere fringe position. Okay, the 24-hour, the literal 24-hour day view cannot be considered orthodox. It was just a view held by various people. Mook responds to this challenge by dividing the church fathers into two camps. One, the literalists and the allegorists. But this this can't be a, a valid division because since they didn't know the meaning of the Hebrew word yaum and its various range of definitions, which one is literal and which one is allegorical? The only way to find out which is literal and which is allegorical is to (laughs) compare them to history. Compare them to natural law, natural history, and the archaeology and geology. That's the only way you can find which is literal and which is allegorical. For example, when Yahshua Messiah refers to the tares, He's not referring to literal weeds. He's referring to Jews. So that's an allegorical usage of the Greek word tear. In the former, he he includes Lactantius, Victorinus, Ephraim the Syrian, and Basil, all of whom he claims taught 24-hour day view. In the second camp, he places Clement of Alexandria. Now, so he's assuming that allegory is anything other than a literal 24-hour-a-day view. But that's the, that's the dispute and contention here. In the second camp, he places Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Ambrose, and Augustine. Hilary and Philo, who I m- mentioned earlier, also belong to this group. While Mook lists Ambrose among the allegorists, He is quick to point out that Ambrose largely followed Basil with respect to Genesis 1. So for Mook's purposes, Ambrose can be treated as being among the literalists. Okay, so you choose uh, according to your... This is an artificial division by Mook, in my opinion, and I think uh, Mr. Millam agrees. The implication of all this is that Augustine and company's creation views should be dismissed. Because according to Mook, they did not interpret Genesis literally. That would support Mook's conclusion by effectively removing any early church opposition to a calendar day view. Allegory versus allegorical interpretation. To understand what is meant by allegorical interpretation, we need to draw a clear distinction between that and a plain allegory. Allegory is a figurative or symbolic representation referring to a meaning other than the literal one, which I just gave, tear. We're not talking about literal weeds. We're talking about Jews. Certain passages of Scripture contain allegory, as well as other figures of speech, which can be understood using the normal rules of interpretation. For example, Paul uses an allegory based on Hagar and Sarah in Galatians 4.21-31. 
to illustrate why the Galatians should not listen to the Judaizers. Um, I don't think he's correct here. Let's go there because what Paul, he uses the expression children of the flesh, that the descendants of Hagar are the children of the flesh and the descendants of Sarah are the children of the covenant. But he uses the two, he uses two terms. Let me just go through it here. Galatians 4.21, tell me that ye desire to be under the law. Do ye not hear the law? Okay, well, the fair question. Those of you who preach the law, he's talking to the Judahites. He's not talking to Jews here. Although these Judahites could be considered Judaizers because they didn't want to accept Yahshua Messiah as the Messiah and were reluctant to give up the ritual laws, the ritual sacrifices. To that extent, Many of the Judahites standing before Paul were Judaizers. Galatians 4.22, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, and that's obviously Hagar, the other by a free woman, and that's obviously Sarah. So what's the difference between bond and free here? Well, he's identifying their offspring. He's distinguishing their offspring. The offspring of Hagar, which were cast away and became known today as the Arabs, the descendants of Ishmael. They were cast out so as not to interfere with Isaac's inheritance, with Isaac's seed line, with the covenant seed line. That's what this is about here, folks. Paul is bringing this issue up to contrast the seed lines. But he who was of the bondwoman, that is Hagar, was born after the flesh. So Paul is contrasting here simply, he's saying that the Hagarites, the Ishmaelites, were simply given animal-type flesh. This is not in the sense of sins of the flesh, because he's not talking about sin. Because we, Israelites, have the same problem with sins of the flesh as any other race, as the Ishmaelites have. We have the same problem with sins of the flesh. He's not using the, the word flesh in that sense. He's talking about literal flesh. They have mortal flesh, a flesh which is to be contrasted from the, the flesh of the free woman. But he, that is Isaac, of the free woman, was by promise. Okay, so one seed line was created by promise. The other seed line was simply made by sexual intercourse without any promise. That's why Ishmael was cast out. That's why the sons of Keturah were cast out, so they would not interfere with the covenant seed line. Galatians 4.24, which things are an allegory. So he's telling, I'm using, I'm giving you the story of Isaac and Ishmael as an allegory, but the allegory has a literal meaning, folks. 
all allegories have a literal meaning. It represents a literal fact. And the fact is that we sons of Isaac, children of Isaac, are the covenant seed, and the children of Ishmael are not. That's what Paul is telling us here. For these are the two covenants, the one from the Mount of Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is by Hagar. He is he's talking he's using Hagar as an allegory for the punishments instituted at Sinai for violations of the law. These people are not the covenant people. They were not given the release. They were not redeemed at Calvary as our seed line was. So he's using this as an allegory. Now, why is he going to this trouble to use an allegory? Well, it's possible there were people standing in front of him who might have killed him <laughs> if he spoke the truth literally. Galatians 4.25, For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. Yes, and they are Arabs. And Mount Sinai still stands in Arabia. And answereth to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. So he's using Hagar as a symbol for bondage. Okay, and if you still obey the ritual laws of sacrifice, then you are still in bondage. This is the allegory that Paul is using here. Verse 26, But Jerusalem which is above is free, and that is the Jerusalem which we, the twelve tribes of Israel, are to inherit which is the mother of us all. He's still contrasting the children of Hagar with the children of Sarah. Verse 27. For it is written, Rejoice thou barren that bearest not. That was Sarah. She didn't conceive until she was 90 some odd years old. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Okay, so Sarah wound up having millions more children than Hagar. Because we are the children of the covenant and we fulfill the promises. Galatians 4.28 Now we, brethren, us, brothers and sisters, as Isaac was... Paul is clearly teaching the covenant message here. We, brethren, Adelphos, children of the same womb. Whose womb? Sarah's womb. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of the promise. They, the children of Hagar, are not. Any questions? Any misunderstanding here? What the allegory means, he's contrasting the children of the covenant against children who are not of the covenant. Let's continue, because this is good stuff. But as then, he that was born after the flesh, meaning the Arabs, the Ishmaelites, persecuted him, that is Isaac, that was born after the spirit. And even so it is now. He is confirming the exclusivity 
of the covenants as given through Isaac and then through Jacob. And that no other people other than the direct descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob can be counted as a covenant people. Verse 30. Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. What don't you understand, Judeo-Christian? Verse 31. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Listen, children of Israel. That is the proper interpretation of Galatians 4, 21 through 31. It is not a universalistic book. Not one word of the Bible is universalism. It's a, the book is about two by four and about the Adamic grace and the offspring known as the covenant people, which we are, not the Jews. So, let's get back to the article here. So, and he says, for example, Paul uses an allegory based on Hagar and Sarah to illustrate why the Galatians should not listen to the Judaizers. That's correct. You should not listen to the Judaizers. That's part of the message. But even more, as I just explained, the message is distinguishing the covenant people from the non-covenant people of Hagar. And Paul also distinguishes the descendants of Edom from the descendants of Israel. He does that in the book of Romans. So Paul, properly understood, is a covenant theologian teaching the two seed liners. Allegorical interpretation, on the other hand, involves looking for a symbolic or figurative meaning beyond or instead of the literal or historical one. Yeah, that's good. You, so you very well stated here. Let me repeat this. Allegorical interpretation, on the other hand, involves looking for a symbolic or figurative meaning beyond or instead of the literal historical one. All right. Any allegory must have a very specific literal meaning. It's just that the words don't say it as such. Uh, for example, George Orwell's Animal Farm. The pigs. Who are the pigs? Well, very obviously, the pigs are communists, authoritarians. But I think the pigs are Jews. I think George Orwell understands that very well, that the pigs are Jews. So the literal meaning of the allegory is that the pigs are Jews. They're more equal <laughs> than everybody else. One extreme example comes from Philo, where he interprets allegorically the cherubim guarding the entrance to Eden, Genesis 3.24, as representing the two hemispheres of heaven. Okay. The key difference between allegory and allegorical interpretation is that for the former, the meaning is found in the text itself, while the latter looks beyond the text and relies heavily on the ingenuity of the interpreter. Okay. The challenge for every allegory is to determine what is the true literal meaning of the allegory. Although in poetry, you can use allegorical language and let the reader determine 
for himself or herself what it means. But any real allegory always has a literal meaning to it. And it is up to us to determine what that literal meaning is. And in fact, the word parable is allegory. And when the apostles asked Jesus, what means this allegory (laughs) of the wheat and the tares? And he explained it very thusly. He said, the wheat are the children of the kingdom. The tares are the children of the devil. Any questions? Next section. Historical background on the allegorical interpretation. Allegorical interpretation of scripture first gained prominence among the Hellenistic Greek-speaking Hebrews, Judahites of Alexandria, Egypt, starting around the 2nd century B.C. Now, the fact that these Judahites spoke Greek does not make them Greeks. They were Judahites. And all the research I've done on Philo suggests that he was a Torah-believing Judahite. Uh, Philo of Alexandria, who I mentioned earlier, is the most prominent example of this group. Okay, so there was a tendency among the early Israelite Christians who were brought up learning Greek mythology to try to compare and incorporate Greek mythology into emerging Christianity. And that, some to a greater or lesser extent than others. This does not mean that they are actually distortionists. They were just comparing the two systems. Uh, But in some cases, they went too far. I don't think Philo went too far. I don't think he was a Hellenizer. Others were actually Hellenizers, trying to distort Christianity into Hellenic versions of mythology. Be that as it may, let's continue. Alexandria represented one of the largest Jewish uh, Judahite communities living outside of Israel. It was also a major center of Greek learning. The Judahites there were caught between engaging the surrounding Greek culture and remaining faithful to their own. That is correct. They were not Talmudists, which is true Judaization. In three different ways, allegorical interpretation played an important role in helping the Hellenistic Judahites find a balance between those two different worlds. First, it provided a way to apply scripture passages to the audience's non-Israelite context. Second, well, but actually most of them, the, the Greeks that were there were probably Israelites and didn't know it. So it would have been relevant to them if properly elucidated. Second, it allowed writers to comment on Greek ideas not directly discussed in Scripture. In the example I mentioned earlier, Philo used the cherubim as a springboard to write about the nature of the heavens. Third, some parts of Scripture seemed meaningless or even absurd to a non-Israelite audience or a non-Judahite audience. Allegorizing them would help blunt those objections. That's for sure. 
It was in Alexandria that this mode of interpretation eventually crossed over into Christianity. Alexandria was a major intellectual center for early Christendom with an important catechetical school, catechism. I didn't know they had a catechism in Alexandria. I thought that was a Catholic term. With an important catechetical school located there and of which both Clement and Origen served as headmasters in their day. So what would a catechism in Alexandria, Egypt consist of? Well, it would have to be concise statements made from the Hebrew scriptures and related to emerging Christianity, the fact that the Messiah had come. All of the Judahites in Alexandria and any dispersed Israelites that happened to live there among them would have been intensely interested in the coming of the Messiah, the fulfillment of prophecy. Allegorical interpretation served a similar purpose in the early church as it had among the Hellenistic Judahites because they too were surrounded by Greco-Roman culture. In other words, paganized Israelites. Even more, and of course this author doesn't recognize that, even more the early church, including all of the church fathers, was itself almost entirely non-Jewish. Now in this we could use this word correctly because they rejected Judaism and they rejected the Edomite Talmudists. So non-Jewish would actually be a correct word here. With little knowledge of the Hebrew language or Hebrew culture. Well, I wouldn't say that. Not Hebrew culture. They, uh, Many of these people were veterans of the co- conflict between the Edomite Pharisees and Judahite culture. Judahite culture being exclusive and racially segregated, where Judaism has always been multiculti. So there would have been this knowledge, and this is why the early church Judahites would have rejected Judaism. So the Old Testament as plain Judahite history would have had little meaning to the church fathers or their listeners. Uh, Jewish history as they understood Judaism as being a rejection of Christ and a rejection of the segregationist teachings of the Old Testament. Origen was the leader in popularizing allegorical interpretation. Even more, he codified it in his threefold method of interpretation from first principles. In his system, interpretation occurred on three different levels, paralleling the tripartite nature of man, body, soul, and spirit. The first level of interpretation is the body, representing the plain, literal, obvious meaning, followed by the soul, consisting of moral principles, and lastly, the spirit, representing the deeper meaning that is brought out by allegorical interpretation. Okay, I would refute this last that this last uh, way of interpretation is at all relevant or meaningful. Because the allegorical interpretation of Scripture always, the parables, always refer to a basically literal, factual reality. And uh, if it's referring to how we should view heaven, then th- that's, that's a discussion for theologians not representing any, anything concrete in the world. 
So it's, I don't see that stuff as even relevant. You know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? You know, it's irrelevant. When the plain literal body of interpretation seemed absurd, it indicated that the reader needed to look beyond it using allegorical interpretation. Or, the way I view this, uh, comparing our reading of the King James with a, cor- a corrected version, such as the scriptures, deleting the word Gentile altogether, because it has no business being in any translation, because it does not represent either the word goy or the word ethnos, that if it does not represent goy or ethnos, the word should be tossed out and a more proper word should be used. So this is not allegorization of the King James. It's correcting the King James, where it's made a tremendous mistake in using the word Gentile to typify goy and ethnos, where this cannot, and the word Gentile is used in a multicultural sense where no such thing is justified. Okay, so while this mystical approach, and yes, that's what it is, may seem extreme or unnecessary, as I just said it is, it did serve to apply the text to, to people's current situations and concerns. Okay, so let me tell you a parable, <laughs> right? Not that this parable may be of any relevance, but it might be entertaining. Today, we might call this method contemporary application, if in fact it does apply to contemporaneous subjects. Well, but my comments on Galatians 4, 21 through 31 show that the allegory that Paul was using was meant to posit a literal fact, namely, that the children of Hagar are not the covenant people, but only the children of Sarah through Rebekah and Isaac, and of course, Jacob and his four wives, are the Adelphos, namely, the literal womb from the same womb from which we all spring. And that womb, it belongs to Sarah. Now, because Rebecca had twins, one who was an antichrist in her womb and the other who wasn't, Esau was rejected and the covenant relationship between Yahweh and the covenant people Israel went through Rebekah and therefore Jacob and not through Esau. And there was no problem with the other four wombs of Jacob's four wives. The early church saw the entire Old Testament as being about Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm not sure that's a way too broad generalization. I'm sure they considered the Old Testament history. I think you could say that the entire Old Testament presages or predicts the coming of Messiah. But there's uh, the vast majority of the Old Testament is simply Hebrew history, Israelite history. And not all of it presages the coming of Christ. So I think that's way too broad a statement. I don't think the early church saw it that way at all. Every detail, not just, the, not just specific prophecies, could be viewed as serving as a type or symbol of Jesus Christ. Well, I mean, you could read that into it. That that would be, uh, I guess, uh, 
interpretation number three, method of interpretation number three, and that's just stretching things too far. Okay, so uh, yeah, we, we don't want to mystify. <laughs> we don't want to mystify the Old Testament. Uh, there are obvious references to the coming of Christ. That once once Christ came, once Messiah came, then you go back and look at the prophecies and say, oh yeah, 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 like the prophecy that he would be encompassed by dogs. Yeah, he was surrounded by Jews when he was on the cross, and he was surrounded by Jews when he was being tortured, and he was surrounded by Jews when he was being falsely tried and accused. So yeah, you can see it. Once you understand the historical fulfillment, then you can see the allegorical interpretation, how it, how it is allegory with a literal meaning, encompassed by dogs. Some of the prophecies are quite literal, namely that uh, there would be lots cast for his garment because his garment was one piece of woven cloth. It was not stitched together. It would be it was considered blasphemy to tear it apart and take it take pieces of it. So they cast lots for it. That was literally fulfilled. So the both literal and figurative prophecies. But you have to determine whether or not it is a prophecy in any sense to determine whether it's allegorical or literal. So he continues. Yeah, that, that, uh, that is extreme in my opinion. Along with a variety of other non-literal devices, allegorical interpretation served as a way to uncover hidden Christological meanings. Yeah, and it's worth studying the, the Holy Scriptures to see which statements are allegorical prophecies of the coming of Messiah. For example, scriptural references to wood were sometimes seen as pre, a prefiguring of the cross of the Christ, I should say, the prefiguring the cross of Christ. I will dwell on this more in more detail in part three, but for now we'll simply emphasize that most of the church fathers, uh, I would say, they engaged in speculation. <laughs> Even I have been guilty of that. Not just the allegorically inclined ones viewed the Old Testament through a Christological lens. We see this, for example, in Hilary, and Poitier, Hilary of Poitiers' homilies on the Psalms, where he views the Psalms as primarily being about Jesus Christ and so downplays their original historical context. Well, some of the... Uh, here we go. I, I would disagree with the word primarily, but many of the Psalms and much of the Psalms' content was prefiguring the coming of Messiah. And even Yahweh himself, that David was a type of Christ. So that, uh, you know, we see there are similarities. But again, the challenge is to isolate the passages that are actually predictive, whether literally or allegorically, figuratively, of the coming of Messiah. And that, that's the challenge. So which is a literal prophecy and which is an, uh, a figurative prophecy? And that's a lot of fun to figure that out. So, uh, yeah, but uh, to say that the early church fathers were in one camp or the other, you know, is, uh, I don't think he's claiming that they all are, but certainly some of them were. 
and they they went to extremes of speculation, <laughs> which they called allegory. All right. So I think we can leave it at that for today. Uh, you know, allegory is a good thing if properly understood. It's a bad thing if you don't understand it. And the vast majority of Judeo-Christians today have no understanding of Hebrew allegory or Christian allegory for that matter. And because they falsely believe the Jews are the Israel of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is about Jews and the New Testament is about Christians of any race. No, the Jews are not Israelites. The entire Bible from beginning to end is about Christian Israel. Our comings and goings and our destiny, our origin and our destiny. It's not about any other people except as they relate to us as Galatians 4 clearly states that the Hagarites are not of us and not to be considered us and don't get our inheritance. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition. See you all next time.